Hello, and welcome to Global Data Pod, JP Morgan Economics podcast on all things interesting and important in the global economy. I'm Bruce Kasman. With me this week is Nora Santivani and Joe Lupton. And we're going to talk about some fairly extensive research we've been uh, publishing on the issue of what's been the case of labor market recoveries across the world. And let me just start with the simple observation, which to some degree motivates this, which is we've been seeing labor markets tighten, at least as measured unemployment rates have been falling rapidly. And in fact, as we close 2021, unemployment rates in both the developed market economies and the emerging market economies as a group have come within two or three tenths of where they were before the pandemic. Now, we clearly know that's not the case in terms of GDP, at least for most countries. So the question is, what's actually happening in labor markets, uh, how we interpret it. And obviously, we want to get into also what it means for the outlook for the year ahead. But let's start, Joe, with you for the developed market economies. Um, are labor markets as tight, as healthy as the unemployment rates actually suggest? Well, it, it's the or there that I would take issue with. And, and Powell did something similar where he kept in his press conference where he kept saying labor markets are strong. Like labor markets are tight. So yes, they are tight, but I would argue strong is not the right word. And to answer your question, are they healthy? I would say, no, they're not healthy in, in most cases. Now there's variation of course, within the DM, but at the end of the day, unemployment rates are back to near pre-pandemic levels and arguably even, which were tight to begin with when we were coming in to the pandemic. So yes, labor markets are tight. But under the hood, you know, unemployment rates are the tension between kind of demand and supply. And when you look at those two components of things, we're still far away from normal in a, in a number of, of countries. The U.S., it really stands out where you still have employment to population ratios very depressed. You still have labor force participation rates very depressed. And it's the fact that those two are both depressed together that's giving you a tight labor market. Uh, so answer to a short answer to your question is uh, it's a little bit of both tight, but not healthy. So let's before we get into some of the details around that, let's turn to Nora. Um, compared to what Joe just said, what would you characterize the state of EM labor markets as? Yeah, actually, the message on emerging markets labor um, emerging markets labor markets um, is not dissimilar to what, what Joe described. Uh, labor markets are still. I would say damaged uh, despite low unemployment rates. The EM unemployment rate is you know, it's just 0.3 percentage points above its pre-pandemic level. But again, this masks what appears to be quite large disruption. We have still quite deep um, declines in employment to population ratios and labor force participation rates uh, relative to pre-pandemic levels that are, I, I would say, similar to the aggregate shortfalls um, in DM. I think what's also interesting in EM though is uh, significant variation across regions. There are some labor markets in EM that are genuinely tight and genuinely healed as well in terms of both labor force participation and employment rates uh, back at pre-pandemic levels and unemployment rates back at pre-pandemic levels. So, so where would the, that be? Where, that where would be EM Europe, so Central Eastern European economies, Russia, uh, also Turkey. Uh, in contrast to that, you have some regions and countries which are hugely damaged, and South Africa stands out in particular uh, with an unemployment rate that's still six percentage points above pre-pandemic levels and significant damage to 
both labor force participation and employment rates. Similarly, in India, there's been sustained damage. And Latam, as well, is, is the region that really stands out where both employment and labor participation rates are still about 3% below pre-pandemic levels. Uh, so there's a good mix of uh, different levels of, of tightness and some of them being genuinely healed, but others still showing you know, quite significant damage from the pandemic. So let's get into the why of this for uh, a bit. And, um, you know, if we ask the question, you know, why are we sitting with low part rates? Why are we sitting with uh, tight labor markets in a world um, in which, um, um, you know, GDP is pretty close to being, excuse me, GDP is not being close to being back to, to normal levels. Uh, you know, what is what, what is the pandemic here? What is uh, it doing? And what else might be happening here beneath the hood as as you look at it? Joe, maybe take the, the picture for the DM economies. Yeah, I think the framework is the same across, you know, all economies. And it's just to, to recognize that there's kind of two separate issues, right? There's the issue of what we just spoke about, labor market tightness, and that's the, the relationship between employment population and labor force participation. Those things are still depressed in a number of countries in, in the DM, that's largely the US and the UK, more healing elsewhere. Then there's a separate issue that you're raising, and in some sense, it's maybe the bigger puzzle of this, which is leaving aside the labor force and the employment pop, let's just look at unemployment rates. You know, Typically, we look at these things and we say that they align with uh, where GDP is, uh, and we kind of ignore what's going on but under the hood of, of labor markets. But, but in fact, the, the fact that you have these distortions, if you will, or dysfunctions or lack of healing in the labor market, you know, should relate a little bit to where GDP is. Now that all sounds nice, right? If your employment population ratio is depressed and your labor force is depressed, maybe that's why your GDP is still depressed, right? So if you did full stop there, you'd say, oh, this is a nice tidy story. Unfortunately, you know, and I can see you smiling a little bit, that the place where you see the biggest, the place where you see the biggest kind of lack of healing in the labor market is the US, and yet that's the place where you probably have the most GDP recovery. So you got, you got a whole nother puzzle and in a lot of ways a bigger puzzle going on when you're doing the mapping from unemployment rate to, uh, to GDP. And when we look at this, you can kind of do this, this just by identity, the decomposition. There is a relationship between GDP growth and unemployment rate, but what's left in that identity is a range of factors, including productivity, uh, which we define as GDP per employee, there's hours per work, there's the labor force participation rate is a part of that, and there's population growth. I mean, that's just an identity, and that, that's in the piece. And I actually- But let me just sort of focus, just to hone in before we get into a lot of these other things. There is a, a basic contrast that US GDP is relatively completely healed, but there's a lot of people who are still out of the labor supply, so the part rate is significantly down. In Europe, particularly, uh, GDP is still depressed, but the labor force participation rate is pretty much normal. So people haven't left the workforce. So that's clearly one interesting factor in terms of these dynamics is that, as you were which saying, the precise, U.S. Yeah, which is precisely why you need to look at these other moving parts. And a big part in the U.S. is productivity. 
right? So the I mean, US pro- has had positive productivity news. Big time, big time. I mean, labor force is down a lot. That should be giving you a same story of weak GDP, weekly labor market outturns, but you don't have that. GDP has had a, a pretty remarkable recovery here. Now We're we would- to pre-pandemic trends. We would attribute at least some of that to the rotation in, in activity away from lower service sector productivity. It's the lower productivity service sector. Yeah, activity. you're opening up another can of worms for sure, which we don't do well, in this piece. How many piece, cans actually. of worms are we going to open? That's up the to? problem here. I mean, this piece actually does try to stay fairly high altitude uh, in terms of providing that framework, but you could do this sectoral, and there's no doubt that the sectoral rotation. Uh, between manufacturing and services is a part of the productivity story. However, you'd probably say this, you should be seeing that in other economies and you don't. I think in so, Europe, for instance, there's this work week program so let's, that is let's keeping kinda, hours very depressed. Let's kind of keep this. Uh, so we're saying in the US, US GDP has been pretty completely recovered, but people have left the workforce and you've had this productivity rotation, which has depressed the EPR, the employment population ratio. And therefore you've got both EPR and LFPR for labor force depressed. participation and, and employment depressed, uh, even though GDP is, is reasonably high and that, that leaves you an unemployment rate, which is pretty back to normal. And I think as right. you were saying earlier, to me at least, that from an Oaken's law relationship, if we want to get into that, it's not that far off in terms of the aggregate, right? Yeah, after last Friday, Okins is like spot on at this point. It, give our hats off to Okins. <laughs> yeah, good job, Arthur. <laughs> um, but in Europe, it's it's a it's a very different picture, right? There, as you're saying. So we got normal participation, but but depressed jobs still because of uh, uh, the the work week is it's actually depressed hours, right? That's the the story there. Yeah, and, and you could you could say some of this does explain a little bit of the central bank differences. I mean, obviously, so let's the Fed so we're is... going to get into central banks in a minute. Let's stay away okay. from central banks, but just right. Europe. It's more about the utilization of labor and the lower productivity per employee that that comes um, uh, partly as a result of that, as well as the lower GDP numbers that are feeding into it. Um, EM, it's a bit, it's not that different, but it is a bit different of a story. So why don't we? get into your take on how to read the, the, the differences between what is clearly depressed GDP relative to pre-crisis trend in EM and, and, and unemployment rates, which are almost back, back to normal. Yeah, I, I would say there are some elements of what Joe mentioned for DM that's also clearly reflected in, in the DM, in the EM dynamic. So GDP is still as you say, depressed relative to pre-pandemic levels, the recovery has been incomplete. And yeah, GDP is more depressed than than what the labor market data are are suggesting to us. There has been a decline in the labor force participation rate, although that hasn't been very different from what you saw in the DM. Uh, There's a shrinking demographic dividend as population growth is slowing. I mean, these are things that were already in place prior to the pandemic, these, these trends. Uh, in addition to that, you have a bit of um, what Joe mentioned um, uh, uh, going on for Europe. So you have a reduced utilization of employees, still depressed hours uh, worked, even in you know, countries where employment and labor force have normalized, we generally have a shorter work week, and that's uh, very clear in North Asia, uh, for example. Um, but then apart from that, so that still doesn't fully explain why well, um, the GDP Let's talk, one of the interesting wrinkles you were kind of writing about, and I think is is worth highlighting, is the idea that there could be some 
dynamic related to the way the informal sector was hit here and and how that actually plays out perhaps more in measured labor market outcomes than in perhaps actual labor market outcomes. So why don't, why don't you go through your, your thinking on that? Yeah, so I think the role of the informal sector is, is important to keep in mind. Uh, for Yem, as you say, you know, there's a measurement issue there, but it's something that could help to explain why that uh, you know, recovery in GDP has been less complete, why we have seen this larger hit to output um, than what the measured um, employment statistics would uh, would suggest. In terms of the, the, the share of the informal economy, you know, the World Bank estimates it's around um, a third of GDP, over 50% of jobs in EM, up to 70% in that time. So it's pretty significant. Now, what we typically see uh, is that informal activity, it often absorbs displaced workers from the formal sector during economic downturns. So that would tend to dampen the fall in GDP uh, relative to measured employment. But what we saw during the pandemic shock was, was actually very, very atypical. Um, you know, we, we saw that you know, the lockdowns, they closed um, most of the service sector activities and affected informal firms uh, the most, right? Because those informal firms would be overrepresented mainly in the services sectors. And informal jobs were actually shed very quickly this time around as you know, services, especially high contact services, they bore the brunt of the quarantines and the mobility restrictions. So all these pressures along with you know, the government support schemes that were mainly targeted at the formal sector, they generated a pretty sharp fall in output uh, relative to measured employment. So, so let me just stop you there because I think the kind of the contrast between what you're saying and what Joe was saying about the U.S. is very striking. In the U.S., a big service sector hit this time actually ended up generating a, 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 an increase in, in, in productivity because we rotated demand towards higher uh, productivity sectors and goods. But in the EM, and it's a measurement issue perhaps more than anything else, the bigger hit to the services sector actually depressed productivity because informal uh, workers were shed and that didn't show up as measured employment falling, but they did drop their spending and it did show up in terms of the, the fall in, in GDP. So that's a, a pretty interesting way in which this, this plays out in a, in a sharply contrasting Yeah, and the way you squared is actually that true productivity is probably a lot lower in the EM, and it did go up as you shed these kind of low productivity service sectors, but because it was because of the measurement issue, you ended up with that kind of perverse outcome that you're talking about. Yeah. Is that so also another reason to think that, for example, the CE4 countries to some degree don't have that issue around the informal sector and therefore their their numbers, obviously there are other things going on in their recoveries that 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 they don't become a, an important part of that 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 uh, uh, phenomenon we see in the in the labor market. Yeah, I mean, look. In terms of the the countries or regions where informality is is sizable or likely to be an important driver, it's it's only really uh, some countries in Latin America, parts of South Asia as well, like India and Indonesia. But yeah, for EM Europe, it would. Be, but they're big. They're big countries. Some of them, yeah, right? Yeah. India, Indonesia. Uh, Brazil, Latin America, Latin America, it's big. So and I think the other thing that's important is like tracking, um, 
the, inform the role of informality during the recovery as well. So what we've seen is that informal employment has actually staged a strong uh, rebound. Actually, informal jobs accounted for over 70% of job creation between the middle of 2020 and middle of last year in a couple of Latin countries. What's interesting, though, is that the bulk of these flows have been from formal to informal work, while overall job creation, as we mentioned before, uh, remains quite depressed. So I think this is definitely a risk uh, worth mentioning for EM going forward that there could be some informalization of previously formal employment, and that could have some negative implications for quality of employment or productivity going forward. Nora, you, you mentioned that the informal, like some data there. The whole premise of this conversation has been that we don't measure these things, but you're you're making it, what you just cited there makes you think, oh, we do have measurements. Well, Is it that they're not included in this data? They're just like a separate kind of survey on the informal sector? Yeah, so there's, 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 I mean, they are included. So labor market surveys would, you know, you would just go around, knock on people's doors or get on the telephone and you would be surveying everybody. So you would be capturing also informal workers, it's the ILO. So the data I'm quoting, they're not from the national sources. They're not from the same set of data that we've been quoting here on employment and unemployment. They, they come from the international mm -hmm. organization. So, so, just so let's, let's look forward. Actually, what I wanna focus on, and obviously we could go on in this conversation for quite a long way, but let's hone in on the, the issue of the way policymakers look at this right now. Um, and you know, there's a pretty interesting contrast here. So let's take it first from the the Fed and perhaps uh, even the the broader DM central bank point of view. Uh, you you know, you said up front, Joe, that labor markets are tight but not healthy. Um, can central banks allow uh, central can allow healing in in labor markets uh, at the same time that they therefore um, create labor markets that get super tight? You know, is that is that a is that a reasonable policy approach to take? Uh, and and are we seeing a, some some sense uh, the decision that they're making that they can't really push that that story very far? Yeah, I think really that's the million dollar question in in my mind because you know when you look at these depressed levels of labor force participation, you know, there's an implicit assumption that oh well that's all structural and and it the, what's cyclical is the employment to population ratio the Oaken's law therefore is a reflection of the employment to population ratio and that maps into gdp and labor market tightness is really all about the cycle and with this underlying labor force participation being something structural the question is what happens when that labor force participation rate gets hit in a cyclical way, how long can you tolerate, you know, a, a relatively tight labor market, uh, you know, i.e. a supply shock, right? This is another way. We've been dealing with this past year. Late central banks can't respond to supply shocks, but they're being forced to now because the inflation pressures. This is just another mapping of that same conversation into the labor market space. And what is the risk of, of actually tightening in response to this, the risk is that something that would have been you know, cyclical, a cyclically depressed labor force participation rate, actually becomes structural. 
right? And this is something we've, from the way we've been writing for the, you know, the, all the years I've been here with you, Bruce, is that central banks have to be very careful to recognize some of the, the cyclical nature of things that can become locked in, which is a, the fancy word for this is hysteresis, right? That you end up kind of degrading human capital over the long run. And yes, you kind of get policy rates and you control inflation, but you end up in a world with lower long run potential GDP, which of course affects your ability to meet fiscal finance needs, to affect income, corporate profits, and all of that. So that, as I said, that's really the million dollar question. How long can the Fed let this run hot before it just needs to react and accept that the labor force maybe isn't going to come back? And I think we should just recognize here that this is not a question about whether the Fed, the ECB, other DM central banks tighten. It's about the degree to which they tighten. It's Absolutely. about the degree, yeah. degree to which they look at labor markets as reflecting what the unemployment rate says. And then, you know, in some ways, translating it through perhaps you could say a traditional Taylor rule. Because if you do that, you obviously get very large potential increases, which I think ultimately may happen. But um, there is a balancing act there. On the other side, Nora, you've been focusing quite a bit of your attention on arguing that there is actual structural damage in, in EM labor markets. I, I'd like to kind of leave you with perhaps the, the last part of this to give us a sense of why you think that is, but also what that means for central bank policy as we look forward over the next year or two. Yeah, so I mean, putting everything together, you know, my conclusion, and I think I speak for the EM team when I say this is that uh, there has been um, damage to the EM supply side from the pandemic, including to, uh, to labor markets. And ultimately what that means is lower uh, potential GDP. And we can argue about this, whether potential GDP growth also got hit. But for, for, for the time being, let's all argue that, that actually output gaps are probably um, um, less negative than they were previously, partly as a reflection of this, this damaged supply side and weaker potential. So actually, um, with that in mind, um, you know, slack is, is getting eaten up. And if you combine that with the tightness in some of these labor markets, which appears to be genuine, you are going to get significant pressure on central banks uh, to be tightening here. And that's most evident in EM Europe uh, right now, where you know, the labor markets are fully recovered. These are genuinely tight labor markets that will keep pressure on central banks to removing uh, accommodation. Now, where labor markets are still loose or not fully healed and inflation is still benign, I think there's obviously less pressure to hike aggressively and that's South Africa and parts of Southeast Asia. And then we kind of have this group of countries where it's interesting where there's been significant damage to labor markets but inflation is very high, so central banks are hiking anyway. Um, but in those instances, what we're seeing is actually this policy tightening is dampening growth. And I'm talking about Brazil, for example, and Chile, I would put in that camp as well. So EMs generally, they don't have a formal employment mandate, but labor market matters, and it, it is a driver of inflation. Uh, and it, you know, I think it explains, helps, helps, helps us to explain uh, you know, the varying degrees of underlying inflation pressure across EM and also the varying challenges that the different EM regions face. Nora, does that mean that the, whatever, the millions of people that have left the labor market, they're, they're just written off, they don't come back? No, the informal market. No, well, let's just, let, let's not say 100% of them. You're saying that a significant portion of them never come back. 
Yeah, so this is the big question, Joe, and I think it's important. Um, so as economies recover, two things happen. Um, we see uh, people moving from unemployment to employment and inactive people returning to the labor force. Now, the problem is that if growth slows down and gets hit before all these pandemic drags uh, fully fade, you could see workers becoming discouraged, dropping out of the labor force permanently. And I'm gonna use the word hysteresis, you know, I don't wanna go into jargon, but basically it, 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 it's telling us that there are instances when shocks that we think were temporary or cyclical, they do end up having permanent effects on unemployment and potential GDP. And that could be through skill erosion, productivity losses, a whole bunch of reasons, or you know, the role of informality that I mentioned before, uh, previously formal employment becoming informalized. In India, for example, you're seeing um, urban workers move to you know, agricultural sectors. So there's a whole bunch of dislocations going on here. Some of them are cyclical, some of them will reverse, some of the drags will fade, but some of them could well end up having um, permanent effects on, on the supply side. So let me just make sure I kind of get the message from you, Nora. Is that a message? You can cut this two different ways. One message would be that the supply side is going to be weaker here. And as a result of that, central banks are going to have a lot more to do uh, in order to restrain inflation pressures. Or you could say the supply side is going to be weaker here. And in some ways, that means demand growth is going to turn out to be weaker. And we're just going to have more meaningful underperformance on the EM side. You know, without getting into specific numbers, which of those two do you lean more into right now? Well, what, what we're leaning towards is, is, is this differentiated picture. The fact that there's been more of a hit, uh, more of a- You can't answer the question by yes. You have to kind of give me one or the other. In a, in a general sense, we're kind of going to stay on the, we're going to stay above the fray of getting into all of the country detail. Is EM as a group more going to be damaged in terms of not being able to grow, or are they going to be more pressured for central banks to do more over the next 12 to 18 months? I think, I think um, definitely at least half of them, and LATAM in particular, it's, it's, it's the, the damage to the supply side that's been significant, and that will lead to growth underperformance. But then you have CE, which, you know, similar to the US, strong recoveries, tight, tight. How do you think about Asia? Asia, I think, is, is a mixed picture. You've got North Asia and Southeast Asia, which are very different, right? So Southeast Asia, I think, is similar to the LATAM picture, um, where the recovery just has been very slow um, and, and very incomplete, and probably significant damage to the labor markets, uh, including in India, where, um, or India economists believe that scarring is, is significant, but then you have North Asia, which again, you know, has made a, has made a complete recovery, and that's also evident in the GDP um, performance and complete recoveries in GDP relative to pre-pandemic levels. So, I, sorry, I can't group all the ends into one. There's been significant regional variations here. So let me end by just uh, coming back to what Joe said, which is labor markets are tight; they may not be healthy. And that creates a can of worms uh, that open up here when we start to talk about implications. But I do think as a, it, it is worth noting that as a general point, we see that story as putting more relative pressure on DM central banks as we go through the, the next 12 to 18 months and more relative pressure downward on EM growth 
over the next 12 to 18 months. And that's an interesting um, tension or differentiation that shows up in our forecast. And it'll be, I think, good to keep watching this to see how well we're tracking in, in, in both sides of this. So with that, we'll end it. Thanks everyone for listening and hope we can continue the conversation on Global Data Pod. This communication is provided for information purposes only. Please refer to JP Morgan Research Reports related to its content for more information, including important disclosures. 2022 JP Morgan Chase and Company, all rights reserved. This episode was recorded in February 2022.